great is this, that people are like virtually meeting in this online platform and yet feel comfortable enough to ask somebody that they virtually met an hour ago for assistance and help. And it just, it speaks to like how they set it up so that people felt comfortable. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today I'm bringing you a wrap from the CSAM conference, which has been held virtually over the last few days from the 14th to the 16th of April this year. Now, CSAM is the Society for Simulation in Europe, and the best way to find them is to go to their website at csam-web.org, where you can find lots of information about the organisation and the conference. And it encompasses a wide range of nations, simulation strategies, techniques, learner groups, uh, and uses of simulation. So it's a very exciting conference. Uh, Obviously, it's usually held face-to-face, but for the second year now, it's been held virtually. So what I'm going to present you with today is some reflections from my attendance in a conversation with Susan Eller, who some of you might know. Uh, She'll introduce herself later on in the podcast, but she works in simulation in Stanford and Palo Alto, California. And we chatted about a few of the sessions and hopefully brought you, the listeners, some of the take-home messages we felt were important from the speakers, the panelists, uh, and indeed the interactive workshops that we both enjoyed immensely. And that quote you heard at the beginning of the podcast was from Susan Eller. And I couldn't agree with her more about the sense of community, interactivity and inclusivity that was created by the team who put on this conference. So kudos to the organizing committee and, of course, to the faculty and speakers who all contributed to that outcome. Uh, Susan is an overdue uh, discussant here on Simulcast. Um, Why don't you just say hello, Susan? Tell us who you are and what you do in Sim. So I'm Susan Eller, and I come from Stanford. So I work at the Center for Immersive and Simulation-Based Learning with Dr. David Gaba. I'm the Associate Dean for Immersive Learning and Learning Spaces. Um, and so I am also actively involved in research for simulation and on both the Society for Simulation and Healthcare and the Siren Network, which is the SASEM sim- newly formed simulation network. So I'm um, working on my PhD and just geeking out anytime I can about simulation p- research. Yes, and our listeners might be aware of your excellent work on the SSH Simulation Scholarship Knowledge Map. Uh, But maybe give me a sense of what was a highlight for you at the conference and in particular how it was conducted. You just had a sense of community. So I think they did a wonderful job of creating a sense of belonging, psychological safety. It was like a masterclass in that because I think people felt very free to um, contribute to the chat, to ask questions. So even though we're all kind of new to this distance uh, simulation and distance conference attendance, um, there was no barriers. And I think just this amount of participation I saw in the chats and between the keynote speaker or between the workshop participants was just really um It was kind of unique for what I've seen in conferences so far this year. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it was one of the things that made me come back each evening. You're listening to Simulcast. But let's start by diving into a couple of the sessions now, Susan. 
And the first one I wanted to highlight was one of the keynotes by Vicky LeBlanc, who's an educational researcher from the University of Ottawa in Canada. And her talk was, Do We Learn Better Under Pressure? And it was a deep dive on the relationship between stress learning and simulation. And she started it off by illustrating our response to the stress of the pandemic. And in fact, we all had quite predictable and uniform responses to that, going from being initially quite heroic in the uh, response to the crisis and then having this honeymoon period where feeling like people were always working together, but then drifting as time went on into a more disillusionment phase, uh, which many of us are still going around in. Now, it manifests differently with different people, but these stages are fairly predictable until finally there's some resolution. And so she spoke about two things, Susan, that I'd be interested in your thoughts about. One was, how do we manage the stress that is within simulations? And the second one was about how we prepare our learners through simulation to perform under conditions of stress back in the clinical environment. Uh, What were your thoughts there? Her talk really resonated with me because that's always been this like, you know, that comfort growth panic model. And so it's like when she was talking about that, that was running through my brain is because it's like, you know, how do you have enough emotion to be activated to get them engaged enough, but not overly so? Yes. And she certainly spent some time talking about how we can harness the power of emotions for learning. In fact, she said that emotions are powerful, prevalent, and the mind gives priority to them. And there is this concept of mood congruent processing where positive or negative associations with experiences affect the learning outcomes. And I think one of the things that I saw in her talk that I thought was so good was, you know, in healthcare, we've kind of privileged the cognitive And so we've sort of seen as emotional, I think the words she used were creating chaos. And so we should try not to have the emotions in in the process. And and really that's unrealistic for a start and arguably quite unhelpful because these emotions can be very uh, positive in the sense of creating um, a much deeper kind of learning for individuals, teams and organizations. Absolutely. And as you know, a fellow emergency department uh, veteran like yourself, it, it, you, un- you understand this concept of controlled chaos. And that's what I think about this sometimes. It's like the simulations, when they're designed well, give you that opportunity to have the, like the controlled chaos so you can, you know, kind of guide the learning experience the way that it is best uh, suited to go. So to give a slightly more formal introduction, uh, Vicky LeBlanc is a professor within the Department of Innovation in Medical Education at the University of Ottawa in Canada. So we're very fortunate that Vicky LeBlanc took some time to record a little bit of audio for me herself, where she actually describes a little bit about the main messages of her talk. So in my talk, I talk about how evidence from neurosciences indicates that emotions can have a significant impact on how we perceive the world around us, what we pay attention to, what we remember, as well as our judgment and decision making. Emotions are pervasive. At any given moment, individuals are in one emotional state or another. Emotions are also very powerful. They guide ongoing cognitive processes in order to direct attention, memory, and judgment towards addressing the stimulus that trigger the emotion. So the purpose of my talk is going to be to highlight how heightened emotional environments can impact teaching and learning in a simulation environment, touching on how the pandemic can have added layers of complexity to this. I'm going to present strategies that we can use to mitigate those impacts at the individual and system level. 
and I'm going to discuss how simulation can be used to prepare learners to provide care in heightened emotional contexts. So what were those strategies? Because that's what we care about as simulation educators. Well, her advice about managing stress in sim really came down to three things. The first was to be wary of explicitly manipulating the emotions of learners, i.e. tricking them, because this is very hard to do well and risks significant harm. The second, she said, was where stress was likely to occur, make sure that we link the emotion to the learning experience. Make sure we spend some time diffusing those emotions before we get into the analysis phase and uh, just really emphasize the whole safe learning environment and about what that really means when it comes to managing people's emotional world that is underneath the surface of their behaviors. In that second category of how do we prepare learners to perform under stress, the two strategies she spoke about were overlearning, that is where we practice a task either as an individual or as a team until we're not just proficient at it but really, really, really good at it. And that means that even if we lose some performance under stressful situations, we are good enough. And the second strategy she spoke about, and I'm really interested in learning more about this, is the stress inoculation training where we deliberately put our teams and individuals into situations where they have to develop strategies such as cognitive reappraisal, whereby they learn to deal with themselves and regulate themselves to still be able to perform under conditions of extreme stress. That was pretty interesting stuff. And after discussing these very practical things, of course, being a great researcher herself, uh, Vicky gave us some enthusiastic direction for where she sees the field going in the next little while. Looking forward, there's so much more research that's needed in this area. While there's been a lot of work looking at the effects of stress itself on learning and performance, we know a lot less about the effects of other short-term and long-term emotional states, such as happiness, anger, burnout. We also need more research on how we can use simulation as a way to introduce learners to adaptive emotional regulation strategies, and through repeated practice, develop skills in this area. And the key word here is repeated practice, because our way of reacting to emotional situations is ingrained and not easy to change. So just like it takes practice to become competent at golf, cooking, or managing a trauma, the same holds for unlearning harmful habits and learning new adaptive ways to cope with our emotions. And my hope is that the simulation field can lead the way in this research of how we can understand the role of these emotions on learning and performance and look at how we can use simulation to help our learners adapt and manage in a healthy way with their emotions. So thanks again to Vicky both for that audio and for her excellent contribution to the conference. You're listening to Simulcast. So Professor Petraea Anderson gave one of the other keynote talks. Uh, She works at the Centre for Health and Social Practice at the Waikato Institute of Technology in Hamilton, New Zealand. Her talk was really focused on some of the fabulous technology there is now, including screen-based technology, virtual reality. Uh, And this was including the teaching of what we might call basic sciences to health profession students as well. And when you think about what we used to have in terms of trying to turn words on a page into an imagination of what blood looked like circulating through a body, and now you can actually experience these things and I suppose for me this was probably more wow technology to look at than something I'm going to do immediately but it was pretty impressive yeah 
It's very impressive. And I think she used a lot of good examples. And I love when she used the part about the augmented, I don't know if you saw the part where she was doing the augmented reality and she had the heart and she, you know, so it's like, how do you, and I think that's fascinating because it's like, how do you have practitioners that can like have this 3D and virtual thing and actually look at somebody's pathology as it exists within their body and, you know, help them learn and actually take care of that individualized patient. So that's always been a fascinating one for me. I know we do it at Stanford with teaching parents about their children you know, heart defects and other things. So I think there's many good uses for that. What I appreciate about her talk was just how much that technology has improved and how much thought people are putting into it. And I think it was also good during this talk that people brought up about um, just because the technology exists, it doesn't mean it's necessarily the right tool to use. So people can kind of be seduced by how the wow factor of it and I think you put it or somebody did um, just because you have a, a, a nail doesn't or just because you have a hammer doesn't mean there's a nail around that you need to use it on. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. But I really like your point there. And I do think some of that technology has a lot of promise for patient education and mm-hmm. healthcare consumer involvement in their own care uh, because it certainly explains things really well. It made me think about some stuff that I've just been learning in this ed tech course I'm doing with Monash about uh, you know dual, dual channel theories and visual and auditory and how uh, there is a science to this. It's not just creating a, a pretty multimedia thing. You're listening to Simulcast. So, of course, Petraea Anderson put this very well herself uh, when she tells us a little bit here about her key messages. The key message that I wish to convey is that no matter the modality used, it is most important to recognise that exposure does not equal learning. Just because you put a headset on someone, it doesn't mean that they will understand what they see or how this relates to their practice. And she went on to talk a little bit about something that probably many of us have experienced with uh, virtual reality. And if 3D is used, consideration should also be given to the debilitating effects of cyber sickness and how this is managed. And Petraea also gave a little call for action as to where we should be directing our efforts in terms of uh, simulation scholarship and research uh, in this area of technology. She also gave us some food for thought about bringing consistency into the field. Further development and evaluation of standards for using advanced technologies is needed. There is also a need to address the changing role of the facilitator and how learners are engaged and supported when learning in virtual environments. So yes, plenty of food for thought there and thanks again to Petraea. So one of the other main plenary sessions was about clinical debriefing and in particular the TALK model. So this was given by Cristina Diaz-Navarro, who is an anaesthetist and Associate Dean for Simulation at Health Education and Improvement in Wales. And she talked about something that many of our listeners might be aware of, and that is this TALK model. And if you want to look up more of the fabulous resources about this, you can go to www.talkdebrief.org, where it explains this more. And Susan, I know you're interested in clinical event debriefing, but Christina started her talk by explaining that we all bring quite different things into any healthcare environment, whether that is national culture, roles in life, professional backgrounds. And so we need common ground and common language to understand each other, and hence the significance and relevance of having a structured debriefing tool. And as she put it, this really embeds a culture of dialogue, which I thought was a lovely way to put it. Uh, Just for those listening, 
Talk stands for T for target. What do we need to talk about? A is the analysis. What went well? What could we have done differently? L is learning points. Uh, what are we going to take away from this? And K is for key actions, which obviously might be at a system or team level. So she went on to describe that as well as the experience in uh, three countries, Stavanger in Norway, Barcelona in Spain and Cardiff in Wales. One of the things that I thought was a nice comment, in fact, this was Rebecca Zabo quoting someone else, I think. Uh, one of my non-healthcare friends on hearing about SIM said, ooh, the SIM is the gateway drug to the talking and learning. <laughs> and, I uh, love that one. Yes, I saw that too. It was awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what do you think is, um, you know, she really laid out a way that we can at scale try and turn the skills we've got in simulation debriefing into clinical debriefing. What did you think? Well, yeah, as you said, a clinical debriefing has been something that, you know, I and many other colleagues are very interested in right now. And so, you know, my ears perked up when I heard about this talk. I also, uh, two things, um, kind of stepping back just a second here that I loved about this. A is the simplicity of it. So when you get something that's got like four steps and then it's like, it's easier for me to remember. So talk about your cognitive load. Um, it's, it, it was very like, um, grounded because it's like, okay, I like the simplicity. I like the elegance and I like the fact that she could bring it back to culture. Um, I'm a research geek and I get theoretical, but I love the way that she, um, made it so accessible. Um, yeah. the other thing that I have to say, really resonated with me, and I'm getting a little off topic here, is the fact that she this came from, say, some several years ago when she had conversations with Esther and other people. So it was that organic nature of how this evolved was, I, I was also fascinated by that. And it just reinforced that sense of community to me that exists at SASEM and collaboration that these things can happen over, you know, coffee and evolve to something that's now spread as wide as it has. Uh, yeah, well, so maybe we'll take a little deep dive into some of the other sessions because, as you say, a lot of the gold here was also in the workshops. I was actually part of our Advances in Simulation editor team that presented one of the speedy workshops where we talked about some of the new article types at the journal as well as some top tips for getting published. So I was joined by Gabe Reedy, who's our editor-in-chief, Ryan Bridges and Peter Diekman, as well as Sandra Vickers, who is our new social media editor. And I thought it was really useful going through both the high-level things about conceptual coherence that Ryan Bridges was talking about about, as well as just some of the practical things like following the manuscript guidelines, uh, thinking about how to prepare things, and really making sure you've done your homework and seen who has published material in this same topic area. So, Susan, did you get something uh, out of the workshop? I believe you went along. Uh, yes, I did. And so, this is—I have a unique perspective on this because even though I've been simulation for the past thirteen or fourteen years. I am relatively new on some of the deeper dive into my academic journey. So, um, for example, I'll disclose I've submitted my first, first author paper ever this year. And one of the things that I like, I probably threw out into the Twitterverse that this was a wished for thing. Like, it would be great for people like me that are trying to learn how to navigate the system. Because when you sit at like second or third author for years, um, this is a new role. And I'm, been blessed with incredible people that I'm working with who are welcome to mentor me, but it's still like, I feel like it would be really great to have some of the pragmatic, how do you get through? How do you navigate? Yes, it's very sobering. Of course, we think we're the first people ever to have a manuscript sent back because we uploaded it in the wrong place or with the wrong font, but uh, actually we all do that. 
And for those interested, these new article types are up on the Advances in Simulation website. They are Innovations, Methodologic Intersections and Advancing Simulation Practice. And that's at advancesinsimulation.biomedcentral.com. One of the other workshops that I went to was the Meta Debrief Club run by Nathan Oliver and his team from NHS Lothian. This is actually a group that we've profiled on Simulcast before who run a group that reviews their simulation debriefings in the form of a get-together once a month or so to look at videos of their debriefing and have semi-structured chats uh, in the spirit of coaching for improved debriefing practice. If you're interested in what they're doing, as I said, they have got an article in BMJ Stell that we profiled on Simulcast. They also have a Twitter handle called at Meta Debrief Club. But in the workshop, we actually walked the walk of the talk, as it were, and did one of these debriefs actually in the workshop. And it was thoroughly enjoyable. And I think I learned some of the things about having some structured questions, which can make these conversations a little bit more comfortable. And they've got some trigger cards that they use, as well as, I guess, the habit of doing this, which then also makes it, I think, a little bit easier to normalize these performance conversations about our debriefs. So a shout out to that team. And I think we're hoping we might do another Simulcast episode with them. You're listening to Simulcast. Uh, One I think we were both at was uh, David Grant and the Bristol uh, team. Uh, presenting their work on systems testing uh, simulations and in particular they have a I guess a nice bit of guidance to uh, how to structure your planning called the prepared tool Uh, and again they happily shared this with everybody but it sort of goes through really thinking about are you identified the problem appropriately is sim the right way to address that problem have you really got your aims clear have you designed things then effectively and then by the way how are you going to debrief this and disseminate the messages but uh, once again it was another nice workshop where we also got to break into some groups and pick out some projects that people had and really work on how you're going to approach this systems-based testing Uh, I think you were at that one weren't you yes it was that was actually um it was another one of the highlights, I think, um, for many reasons. Um, a, as I've said before, I like the simplicity of the tool. It's laid out nicely visually. Um, the steps in the in the second page that of the guide that he had were very clear and very easy to follow. Um, you mentioned earlier about the different languages, and we're in a group of like seven or eight people, and there was probably several people there that English wasn't the first language and yet it was so easy to follow. And, you know, for a very short limited amount of time that we had, we went through as much of the steps as we could very well, you know, like what's the project, how do you do this going through the process step-by-step. Step, and then one of the facilitators jumped in and he said, Oh, let's go back to this problem just to rethink about something. And it helped the whole entire group refocus, which I think is how that pro- how that tool probably works in the real world because it's like oh wait we've done this and we've done this great now let's go back and do this check and see how it works and then we were able to kind of sharpen our focus and clarify some things even better so and the fact that we took somebody's real world problem who she was working on because sometimes outsiders can be really valuable i think your other point too about uh language and just for simulcast listeners who might not appreciate the sheer breadth of csam um engaged 
participants. It really is global, but in particular across Europe. And I did notice a lot of times uh, some people obviously felt more comfortable putting stuff in the chat because they could type their English better than they felt like they were going to express it. And I think that really is an advantage I hadn't quite appreciated before, being completely monolingual myself, embarrassingly. Uh, but I think it, it really did sort of help so we could get both and it meant people didn't have to uh, feel like they weren't expressing themselves as well as they could in a written way. One of those like most profound moments for me of this whole conference was when Doris Ostergaard, during her um, keynote speech, said she had she was also talking about um, using simulation for system testing, and she said she had attended the workshop the day before, and she had four slides within her presentation that after um, attending the workshop, she took the four slides out and just put the one slide of this prepared tool in, and it was just such an amazing thing that somebody who's at the level of a keynote speaker would say, I attended this workshop, I had this wonderful experience. And because of that, I learned and grew, and I modified my keynote presentation. And that's actually a nice segue into thinking about another one of the presentations, which was from Doris Ostergaard, who's an anesthesiologist and professor at the Copenhagen Academy of Medical Education and Simulation. Uh, and she gave one of these state-of-the-art talks about using simulation, in particular for physical space design and redesign. And one of the things that I thought uh, she illustrated really well was both the iterative process of this, which is sort of test it, review and repeat it, uh, and also the opportunity to do tabletops. And they had some very cool little cardboard cutout things and they were moving stuff around. And I know people do this, but it was nice to see what they actually do before then scheduling a sort of full day, getting people there so that you can really make the most of that day and you're not solving problems you could have just as easily saved on a, on a tabletop. And that also seemed to resonate with a lot of the audience who were confronting similar problems. I think that was a huge thing is that this um, kind of like iterative thing with the low fight, it's, I think people think low, low technology means low fidelity. And yet, you know, there was beautiful discussions about starting this off the way that it was, is the right way to do it. Um, and to like, you know, cause then you could see, Oh wait, I don't want to get too far into the process and to say, this isn't going to work. And I have invested all this time, technology, effort and resources in it. So it's really pragmatic. I also thought that, she did a beautiful job of talking about engaging the, you know, frontline users or stakeholders in, in the entire process, which I think she had a lot of really good design principles that just resonated with the entire, that chat was just exploding with people being, you know, this is so great. And to the fact that they're saying um, over and over, I wish we had, I wish our healthcare system or my hospital was designing things this way. I wish, you know, so it's just like, the fact that the people she's working with felt so seen and so involved in the process, um, you know, is going to make it for a smoother change anyhow. Yeah, exactly. And that was something that David had, as you said, really reinforced in that workshop as well. Get everyone on board if you're going to be doing this. And for simulcast listeners who are looking for a little bit more on this topic, Doris Ostergaard gave a couple of shout-outs both to Andrew Petrosoniak and Team's article about design-informed simulation uh, as well as Nora Coleman's article, Simulation-Based Clinical Systems Testing for Healthcare Spaces from Intake Through Implementation uh, in Advances in Simulation from 2019. Those who are interested in blog-type pieces on this, you might also be interested in the mcrit.org piece from Chris Hicks on The Future is Simulated, Breaking the Shackles of Bad Clinical Design. So plenty of great reading out there, uh, and people doing excellent work. 
then one of the things that uh, you were involved with was a series of short talks relating in various ways to the pandemic and what people had done with their simulation, whether it was using SIM to prepare and address and manage the pandemic or whether it was responding to the pandemic by redesigning their uh, simulations. And again, I saw lots of nice, uh, it wasn't just a series of talks. They really, there was some effort to integrate and connect the ways that people were doing that. But you actually talked about the uh, survey and research that you'd done on distance simulation. Why don't you give that a little plug while we're here? Sure, I'd love to. Um, this work all started during uh, Inspire Network and for pediatrics, I'm sorry, for those who don't know. Um, and they said, everybody's been doing this. We don't really know what's happening because different people are naming it different things. Some people are using telesimulation. Some people are saying distance. So one of the first steps of the process is kind of do this uh, taxonomy to say, what are we really talking about? And then a group uh, got together. So there's over 20 of us all involved. It's There's a core research group, and then there's a bigger steering committee um, well, we're trying to figure out what is the state of distance simulation now. And so it, it started with what happened after COVID because that was kind of how it started for many people. And in the survey, we did find out that, um, you know, 70% of people before COVID had never done any type of distance simulation before and then started it afterwards out of necessity. So the survey looks at um, kind of like what were you doing before? What were you doing during? What, were, what do you plan on doing going forward? But also kind of what were the barriers to implementation? What were the things that made it easier? And then what type of training did you have for either the educators or the simulation specialist? And then what kind of, and that means not just the technical training, like I know how to use Zoom or I know how to use Laravel to do virtual vitals, but also do you have any training on how to meaningfully do distance learning? Because a lot of people didn't. So um, we, we just wanted to get kind of like a snapshot. So it's a very descriptive survey about what exists right now. Um, we were fortunate to have um, 700 people started at 618 people completed it from 32 different countries. Wow. And again, there was a lot of thought that went into the survey. So it was um, translated to seven different languages. Um, so, you know, mm. it's like we really tried to make this as international as possible. I think one of the lessons learned is how we can improve that in the next iteration, because this is a three phase program. Mm -hmm. The first phase was a snapshot. The second phase was taking a deeper dive into what educators and um, researchers need to know and operation specialists. I should include that because that's one of the lessons learned because um, how do we, how do we include them in, mm -hmm. in research and work going forward? And then the third one is just like, you know, what are the outcomes? Because that's always what people really are desperately interested yeah, in. Yeah, fantastic. And, uh, and that's about the amount of time you had to talk about it in the conference as well. So uh, well done. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was actually quite nice. And I think one of the points you brought up there uh, is about terminology. And, and that's been one of the struggles for the simulation community. And it led to uh, the Society for Simulation in Healthcare in the US putting up their or designing their healthcare simulation dictionary, which I think is already in its second edition. Uh, but terminology is actually important. And we know some words, I don't know if we're ever going to get to the bottom of things like fidelity, but certainly things like distance sim, what does that mean? What's the breadth and scope of those sorts of things? Uh, so a couple of other things I just wanted to talk about before we uh, start to finish up. But uh, yes, your boss, David Garber, got a little bit of a run. He was interviewed by David Grant, which I thought was a nice way of actually getting some wisdom out of someone who's been in the field for a long time and a leader in the field without him having to 
give a talk. And I think that sometimes you get the best out of people when you're doing that kind of interview style. And I thought David Grant did a lovely job of that. But for those who don't know, uh, David Garber is the Dean of Immersive Simulation at Stanford. And they sort of went back to some of that history, didn't they, about why he'd been involved mm-hmm. and, and what his perspective was as both an engineer and a doctor and an anesthetist and how to combine these fields. And then a little bit about his paper in 2004 about the future vision of healthcare and sort of, well, are we there yet? And one of the more contentious parts of his talk was, I think, that he has this uh, view about really breaking it down and sort of saying you do uni individual training and then uni professional training and then you build it up to others. And I got the sense that not everybody thought that. It, and I felt like I was back in a room debating problem-based learning versus uh, learning or your anatomy before you do any clinical exposure. What were your thoughts? I mean, I guess you know David well, but uh, any thoughts on the session? Yes. So because I do know David well, what David will usually say when he talks about doing single discipline or interprofessional, whatever, is there's there's pros and cons to everything. And then he'll say, some, like, for for instance, what he talked about, the anesthesia crisis resource management, it's anesthesia residents. And he said there's, there's certain objectives that they want to do. Um, and so for that purpose, there's times when they just do the single discipline. But then there's other times when it's essential to have team training, like we do, um, you know, uh, operating room team training and safety events and, you know, other stuff. So he he generally will say there's different, you know, eat, there's different times for the different modalities and pros and cons. And one of the things is like, you know, you don't use the same hammer for everything. You have to choose your tool. So I don't know that that came out as eloquently as he normally puts it, <laughs> um, because I know that's what his philosophy yeah, yeah, is. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, it really goes down to Obviously, we put a lot of these techniques under this broad umbrella of SIM, but uh, many of them are actually quite different. I think he described very sensibly, you can do uni-professional learning and you can have embedded simulated participants representing other roles. It That can have downsides if they stereotype other, other roles, but I don't think that's what he was intending. Right. Well, and, and just like we should be purposely thinking about these things. Again, that embedded nurse that's, you know, like not acting her brightest was one of my 13 years ago is one of the hills I died on when I first started doing sim. Like, no, you're not going to say the nurse is stupid or the nurse is on her break all the time or she doesn't know these things because that's a bad mm. representation of nursing that reinforces stereotypes that I just won't stand for. So, you know, then it's like, what's the balance? You can say, oh, I'm a new grad. I'm, I'm not doing this and I may know some things I may know, but I'm not going to let you do anything that's going to hurt yeah. somebody. So, mm. you know, if there's ways to manage that purposefully. Yeah, absolutely. If that's your intention to do uni, you know, uni doesn't Yeah, I agree. Couldn't agree with you more. Uh, One thing I didn't get into at the time but have since watched, but this was uh, Michaela Holbe and Walter Epic on psychological safety and debriefings, which they've written about. We know they're gurus about. They do workshops on. uh, But they actually did quite a nice job of having that in the workshop. They provide some structure around this psychological safety. They made a great point, which is it isn't just a script that you read. It certainly also isn't something that you just tell people they have. It has to be a feeling that people get because of the way you are and what you do and maybe what you say, but not necessarily just telling people it's psychologically safe. And they add, and they really talked about some of the work that, you know, Amy Edmondson and others have done saying that psychological safety is vested a little bit in individuals. It then has a team construct around it and also an institutional construct around it, which I think was quite useful. But honestly, the best way was when Walter just said, you need to also be aware of what your face looks like in repose. (laughs) And And I think what he didn't say is what in Australia we would call a resting bitch face, which is... 
We say that we in the say States, States too. Well, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> but I thought it was rather nice Walter put it so beautifully, which is sometimes you can have a little frown on your face and you're not really frowning at all, but it just comes across like that. And and I think one of the things that people said, and Michaela said this as well, that sometimes now seeing ourselves on Zoom, we're getting a much better impression of what our face looks like in repose and what, what message that can send to people in a group of simulation learners. So it was lovely. So thank you so much to Susan Ella for that great conversation about the CSAM conference. As I said at the beginning, I was just so impressed from the work of the organising committee and the CSAM executive committee, of whom Mark Lazarevici is the president. And so I asked him for some comments via a Twitter direct message about some of his take-homes from the conference, and he listed them for me. One was that a focused conference format delivered to such a wonderful and active community uh, is the right way to keep engagement high. Second, it is the quality of the program that drives a virtual event, even more so than for a physical one, and so he wanted to pay tribute to the scientific and uh, meeting organising committees. And third, that he thought there's still a clear hunger for events in the community, and so they're looking forward to keeping the engagement high throughout the year as they plan for next year's conference, which is uh, aspirationally planned for Seville. I guess we don't know what the pandemic and other things will bring us in the world, but uh, we look forward to more from CSAM. And just a reminder, if you want to have a look at their website, it's uh, www.csam-web.org. They also have a YouTube channel that you can subscribe to and, of course, a Twitter account as well. But for now, that's uh, Victoria Brazel signing off for Simulcast. That's a wrap for the CSAM conference for 2021. You're listening to Simulcast.